0: The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Milatello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress.
1: Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Brian Moon from Perigene Technologies.
0: And I'm Laura Milatello from Applied Decision Science.
1: We are very excited today to welcome Colonel Larry Shattuck. Colonel Shattuck is Senior Lecturer and Director of the Human Systems Integration Program at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Dr. Shattuck holds a faculty appointment in the Operations Research Department where he teaches Human Systems Integration and Human Factors Engineering. Colonel Shattuck graduated from the United States Military Academy in 1976 and following a distinguished service as a signal officer and receiving his Ph.D. from the Ohio State University in Cognitive Engineering, he returned to his alma mater to teach engineering psychology until his retirement from the Army in 2005. He's been at NPS since, where he co-directs the Human Systems Integration Program. Larry has been an active researcher in the domain of military command and control for nearly two decades. He is unique among his peers in the NDM community for his ability to draw on deep operational experience when studying processes such as how commanders communicate their intent, the manner in which decision-makers fuse data in tactical environments, and the ways in which data and information flow through technological system elements to the human agents in that system. Welcome Larry and thank you very much for joining us.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me, Brian and, and Laura, It's good to talk with you guys again. It's been a while.
1: Yep, it has, uh, and we are very excited to uh, bring you into the Indian uh, podcast. Uh, I want to sort of pick up on the uh, the item there in the introduction with regard to your new unique background. And I'm just wondering if you can kind of share with us how having such a you know deep operational experience has benefited your research. And if maybe you can share specific examples of of how you've drawn on your operational research to inform your findings.
2: Yeah, I'd be glad to do that. So uh, if I go back to probably about 1982, I was a captain in Germany. I was a signal officer in an air defense artillery battalion, and the uh, unit was getting some new equipment. So they were going to combine the communications shelter with the air defense artillery control shelter which seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, but what happened was when we got the new equipment and the air defense person and the signal person were in the same shelter at the same time and the signal person had to do what's called a loop back on that system, that signal person had to lie on the floor on, uh, on his or her stomach under the feet of the air defense operator, reach behind a rack of communications equipment and blindly uh, take hold of a cable and uh, remove it from one uh, fastener and put it on another fastener to, to conduct this uh, loopback to test the communications equipment. and. It did not take me long to figure out that that was a really, really bad design. Uh, and I didn't know anything about human factors at the time at all because I had never been exposed to it. But uh, when I was asked to come back to West Point uh, to teach engineering psychology, uh, after I figured out what engineering psychology was, (laughs) and reflecting back on that experience in 1982, I said, I'm all in. Uh, And so that was a chance for me to... um, then begin to use my military domain uh, knowledge to figure out uh, what designs work and what designs uh, didn't work. So the other thing that uh, my military career has given me uh, the ability to do when I want to do research is access to practitioners. Mm -hmm. So wearing the uniform, I get a chance to talk the same language and be in the same Uh, organizations as people that are doing this stuff. Uh, And I've also had the exact same training that that senior officers had. I've been to Commander General Staff College. I've been to the Army War College. So I can spot pretty easily when someone is deviating from that that training and that education that they've received. So it it helps me quite a bit. Uh, I, I don't have to you know, sort of bootstrap myself up and learn about the domain because I already have been a, immersed in that
1: domain. Right. Do, do you find, with regard to what you just said about deviations, do you find that um, those deviations can be both negative and, positive and and in the sense that they might be deviating for good uh, contextual reasons and so that may lead to feedback on the actual procedures and, and SOPs and that sort of thing. Is is that the kind of deviation that you're talking about?
2: Yeah, typically uh, military folks are creative and innovative, and that's a great thing. Sometimes they just do things that that are not really helpful. I've got a great example of just reflecting on uh, a brigade commander that I was uh, given the privilege of observing, and it was when the Army had begun its Digitizing of the brigade, so all the systems will become digital systems, and we're getting away from analog and paper and all that sort of stuff. And so, this particular commander believed that it was in his best interest to take all of the feeds from all of the different systems: the intel system, and the maneuver system, and the fire support system, uh, and and the personnel system, and the logistics system. And so, he created essentially a wall of televisions in front of him. And he sat there in front of that screen, and I I watched him, and I talked with him to try to figure out what he was doing. And he was trying to do essentially the work of all of his staff officers that that were essentially analyzing and fusing the information for him, and then giving him a distilled version of that battle picture. He was trying to do that all himself and, and eventually it did not take him too long to figure out that that was just not going to work for him. So he rearranged his talk, his tactical operations center, and set it up where uh, he was able to use to leverage the expertise of his staff officers to get the information that he needed to make the decision that he should have made. So uh, that's an example of, of um, something that will you know, it was a, a, a poor use of the technology, but there are others other
1: examples I have that where that they used it pretty effectively. Right. So, so you mentioned uh, before, sort of uh, your initial experience of the person under the under the other person, and and that sort of uh, you look back on that as a it sounds like kind of a first instance of realizing that there's there's better ways to do things. Can you talk to us sort of how you made that uh, shift from there's probably better ways to do it to engineering psychology as one way to learn out, uh, learn how to do these sorts of things. Was that a, uh, a gradual sort of shift to the field or, or did you immediately go searching for a home? So
2: about that time uh, or shortly thereafter, West Point reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to come back and, and teach for Uh, us at the behavioral science and leadership department and I said that sounds great and what do you want me to uh, study and they said we want you to study engineering psychology and after I figured out what that was they said uh, I said where would you like me to go to school and they said well you pick a school so uh, I looked at the various uh, schools that were offering human factors programs and selected uh, Rensselaer Polytech Institute in Troy, New York went there and got a um, master's degree in human factors psychology, and then returned to West Point and taught there for three years. That was from 1985 to 1988. And then wrapped up that assignment, went to Commander General Staff College, um, went to uh, Germany and uh, deployed to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And then in the middle of the the desert there, uh, just after the war had concluded, uh, they reached out to me, West Point reached out to me again and said, would you like to come back in a permanent position, in a, what they call an academy professor position? Uh, and I looked around at all the sand around me and I said, that sounds like a great way to spend uh, several years of my career.
1: Right. And so that's uh, when I applied to uh, Ohio State and got accepted there and got introduced to uh, cognitive systems engineering and natural decision making uh, at at Ohio State. Yeah, so it's really all happening at once for you. You're seeing the operational pieces, you're going to the classroom and learning about it, and then you're trying to figure out how to teach it. It sounds like, uh, yeah, just just a very interesting mix of experiences that gives you a pretty privileged position. Um, I first met you when uh, we were working together on the Army Research Laboratory's Advanced Decision Architecture Program. Uh, And I'm wondering uh, if you could sort of share some memories from your long-term involvement in the program and and kind of looking back in what ways you think the program helped advance NDM. I mean, there were a lot of NDM researchers on the program, and so uh, it was was pretty important, I think, for advancing just the field generally. But I'm wondering if you can share some of your recollections.
2: Yeah, that was a great time. I I look back with lots of fond memories about that. What you may not recall or remember is that um, uh, Collaborative Technologies Alliance, the ADA Collaborative Technologies Alliance, was uh, preceded by something called uh, FedLab, Federated Laboratories. That was also an Army Research Lab uh, established uh, research portfolio and so uh, when I got back to West Point in 1995 I connected pretty quickly with the folks at uh, uh, Aberdeen and Army Research Lab, Human Research and Engineering Directorate, and would bring the cadets down there uh, on an every other year basis uh, to walk around and, and talk with those folks. So I was probably the one of the very few people, if maybe the only person in uniform that had a Human Factors Cognitive Engineering degree. Uh, and and was doing what I was doing in terms of teaching and research. so uh, they welcomed me into uh, the Fed lab program where I got a chance to hang out uh, with folks like Chris Wickens and Art Kramer and Roger Per uh and to um, come alongside them and and sort of be that, I hate to call myself a military expert because I'm, I'm not, but I was a, I was seen as a subject matter expert because I was the only guy walking around in a uniform uh, who had operational experience. And so when the Fed Lab ended and the uh, uh, Advanced Decision, Decision Architectures uh, Consortium stood up, uh, I actually was part of the team that selected that group of Uh, researchers that would eventually become the ADA CTA and uh, there were about five or six submissions uh, and when the selection was made it was pretty much unanimous that we would go with the one that was essentially you know cognitive engineering and uh, uh, NDM heavy team and it was like a dream team I mean working with with all those folks back then it was just incredible so uh, just to rattle off a couple of names and not to leave anybody out but uh, folks like uh, david woods who's my phd advisor gary klein robert hoffman nancy cook uh microanalysis design folks like uh, sue archer and ron lockery and other folks like uh, micah ensley and her team from sa technologies and Folks from Penn State and Carnegie Mellon and New um, Mexico State. It was just an incredible group of folks, and I got to work alongside them and to provide the context for them in terms of okay, what is it that actually happens in a in a brigade a tactical operations center or a battalion tactical operations center? And I got to teach them things like what's the difference between a squad a squad and a brigade or a division, and you know, here's the rank of a of a, a private first class and here's the rank of a, of a colonel and, and it was kind of fun doing that but I was the guy that would, would sort of green them up and let them know what they needed to know about the military context
1: Yeah, as someone who was just sort of entering the field at the time it was. It, you're absolutely right, it was sort of the dream team and, and it's a heck of a way to, to start to cut your teeth on all this uh, NDM stuff but um, I, I'm wondering just if you can Share maybe an example or two of, of ways that uh, you thought that program was kind of instrumental in, in, in NDM generally, but uh, also in providing the NDM benefit to the Army. Do any examples kind of stand out for you?
2: So I think the thing that came out of that, uh, in my mind more than anything else, was the synergy that uh, emerged when you put all those really, really well-known, well-respected researchers working on, the, on a project together and they were you know, each of them had their own individual projects but we came together twice a year to I think I, I seem to remember it was about twice a year typically in Boulder, Colorado where microanalysis and design was located and they would all present kind of what they've been working on and then there was sort of that give and take and feedback and, and encouragement and, and sort of you know correction and course correction sort of stuff. So uh, And that, I think, went on for about eight years. I think it was a five-year with a, a couple, two to three years added on to the end for good measure. Uh, and to have that group of people together in the same room a couple times a year was pretty exciting. I, I remember we did an offsite after one of the meetings, uh, and I think it was Robert Hoffman who may have set it up. And, and I got invited, and I felt honored to be invited but they were going to work on the Grand Unified Theory for Cognitive Engineering. And um, I I just remember to this day looking around the room and seeing all the people that were there and then watching them interact with each other. It was absolutely fascinating to see them, um, you know, sort of espouse their view. And then there was pushback and and, uh, discussion and so forth. Uh, And I'm not sure anything actually concrete in terms of a grand unified theory emerged out of that, but it was the collaboration that they engaged in and uh, that I think was really one of the great benefits of of, of that particular consortium. And I sort of look on that maybe in some senses as as a golden age of uh, uh, NDM and cognitive engineering because you had all these people with uh, you know this great amount of expertise working together typically without something like that we all sort of work on our things separately but there's not that unifying um, uh, uh, function there that exists that the consortium provided
1: yeah no i think that's uh, that's a great way to think of it i, I another piece that uh, would be interested in hear you talk about is is not only sort of getting all the big brains, NDM, uh, in the same room, but the whole other focus of that program was, of course, getting the computer science folks uh, and the NDM folks to sort of work together or at least uh, come together and have discussions. Um, Did you uh, recall that as being an important part of of the experience, too? Yeah,
2: absolutely. There were folks from uh, microanalysis and design as well as, and they had a, a software program, I think was called Gerbil, and then there was the SOAR folks from uh, Carnegie Mellon, Penn State. Uh, and I, yeah, I don't recall whether there was the sort of the seamless interaction between them that I think that the uh, folks that had envisioned the advanced decision architectures, you know, had hoped for. But again, the communication and the discussion back and forth, I think, was really interesting. And, and I, I know that uh, I remember that there was discussion among folks as to whether or not when you're trying to take NDM and turn it into a software program, do you have to be literal about how you do that or are you trying to you know, represent uh, you know, the way our neurons fire and things like that. And, and out of that, I think, came some ideas about how to push uh, that, uh, that sort of computer, the computer science version of that Forward a little bit, uh, and uh, I, I haven't checked in with that on, in a while, so I'm not exactly sure what kind of progress they've made and all that.
1: Yeah, to, to me, there was there was definitely learning on both sides, right? So I, I think, in as much as the NDM researchers sort of pushed the computer scientists to you know be clear about assumptions and uh, and sort of be open to to ways to introduce NDM. I, the, the pushback in the other direction what I thought was just as useful so that the NDM folks were really being pushed to articulate um, uh, what they were uh, trying to model uh, in ways that could be adapted uh, to computer models and, uh, and interfaces and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, I think to me, at least as a, as a somewhat uh, involved uh, observer, uh, just seeing that back and forth I think was incredibly useful.
0: Larry, I wanted to ask, you mentioned that um, it's been a real advantage as a researcher to also have this shared experience with um, other folks in the military. Um, but I'm wondering, has have there has there been a, a place on that government side where you've really struggled to get traction in promoting the NDM perspective? Is, is there any um, piece there that you, you wish you'd been able to carry it forward and you just weren't?
2: So let me talk about what I would consider uh, non-material solutions so in the world that I live in now in the world of human systems integration we talk about material and non-material solutions so in a non-material sense I, I think NDM has made a huge impact so I, I remember distinctly looking at some of the the military decision making doctrine back in the uh, you know early mid 90s and then watching how that morphed uh, in the early to mid-2000s, where the new policy now was all of a sudden talking about things like naturalistic decision-making and recognition, prime decision-making, and even intuitive thinking. Uh, who would have thought that the army that was always advocating, okay, you have to develop three courses of action, you have to war game them, you have to do, look at the pros and cons and the strengths and weaknesses, and then you you know, you war game those things out, you present those results to the commander, commander gets to decide, and all of a sudden, uh, we have this new tactical decision-making method that was really based and grounded in, in NDM. So I was really excited and pleased to see that. On the material solutions side, I think it's way more challenging, or has been challenging, to get uh, NDM and cognitive engineering And even human factors things into uh, into acquisition programs. There seems to be this huge divide between uh, R and D and and acquisition. And uh, I had an opportunity over a few years, as actually part of the ADA uh, technology consortium, to work with Kevin Bennett from Wright State, and Kevin. And uh, a couple of his students who actually became uh, uh, instructors for me at West Point, uh, we worked on something we called uh, RAPTOR, which is an interesting acronym, and I never remember it, so I actually wrote (laughs) down what it was. So, Representation Aiding Portrayal of Tactical Operations Resources. Representation Aiding Portrayal of Tactical Operations Resources. And it was a really, really good... Um, a design that we came up with. So what we wanted to do is to take a, uh, a military command and control display with all of the battlefield graphics on it and, and all the, the information about personnel strength and equipment strength and uh, things like fuel and ammunition um, uh, levels and things like that. And we wanted to automate the plan that was about to unfold. So you're getting ready to start a mission. You can plan that mission or put that mission into the graphics on a computer. But what we weren't able to do was to provide information to the user as to or the decision maker as to when the decision maker needed to figure out how to deviate from that plan. So. Plans, as everyone knows, never go as planned. There's always something that's going to happen. It doesn't survive first contact and all of that. And so this, this device, this display that we created, would continually update, and we simulated the continual update of it, and we were able to display uh, graphically the difference between what was planned and what is And uh, so the delta between what was planned and what is was presented to the user of that system in a way that made it clear how much the deviation was uh, increasing or decreasing. And so that deviation was the thing that we thought he needed to know in order to make a decision as to whether he needed to change the plan, commit the reserve, withdraw, whatever it might be. Uh, But uh, without that kind of a of a representation, the commander uh, was just guessing. So we were never able to take that design and put it into uh, a program somewhere, even though the army was undergoing uh, uh, a transition to something they called uh, CPOV, Command Post of the Future. And we thought that would be a perfect way to represent the information to the commander. And we just couldn't ever make it over that, Divide between the R and D world and the acquisition world. One of the cool things about human systems integration, though, is that it's embedded in the acquisition world. And so, had I known about HSI way back then, I could have perhaps um, made it and uh, made that transition maybe a little bit easier.
0: So this is a great observation. I, I mean, to your first point, I remember when um, these terms started showing up in the military doctrine, and how exciting that was. I think. Um, I think folks, we didn't really dream that that was going to happen as much as we wanted it to. So that, that was amazing. Um, And by the same token, your story about this really powerful um, tool and design concept um, that just never made it into practice. I think, um, I think we all have, have stories like that too. Um, That, that is a frustrating part of this work. Um, And it's not, It's not just the military. I I do a lot of work with the Veterans Health Administration, and they have a research arm and an operations arm, and we'll do, you know, really powerful research about design of health systems, and uh, somehow it's really hard to get that integrated on the operations side. So I think that's a challenge in a lot of spaces.
2: Yeah, and I think that's why what I'm doing now in terms of human systems integration here at the Naval Postgraduate School is really exciting and it's an opportunity for the R&D world to figure out a way to get things into the acquisition world.
0: Yeah, and I think we are seeing a lot uh, more, a big push in that direction, different kinds of contracting vehicles. Um, the Army is, is is trying to reach out to um, different kinds of companies, folks that, that are less researchy and more applied. Um, so we definitely see that that there's movement in that direction.
2: Back in January, the Department of Defense decided it was going to, I would say revolutionize its acquisition process. So if anyone's familiar with the acquisition process, there was this big huge we call it a horse blanket chart that lists all sorts of activities that take years and years and years to complete. So, in January of this year, they introduced something they call the Adaptive Acquisition Framework, AAF. And rather than there being one massive way to get through the acquisition process, there are now six different ways. So, the first way is for what they're calling urgent capabilities. They need something right away, right away meaning within the DoD, less than two years. It has to go from idea to fielding. And the second way is something they call the middle tier, where it is um, based on both rapid uh, prototyping and rapid fielding. And that's, I think, within five years. And then there's the traditional system that they use for long, uh, large programs that are going to take 10 or 15 years. And then they have a software development pathway and another pathway for developing business systems, and another pathway for doing services. And what I actually what we did a week ago uh, today was I brought about sixty or seventy HSI practitioners from all over the federal government onto a Zoom session, and I divided them up into six different groups, and each of those groups worked on a pathway, of trying to figure out what HSI activities need to happen along each of those pathways in order for the human operator, maintainer, supporter to be uh, foremost in, in each of those acquisition and design processes. And the thing that's critical about every single one of those is at the very beginning, there are people that are writing requirements that are going to tell the contractors, the defense industry folks, whoever's designing, coding, building the system, what that system has to do, and that really is the leverage point for anything that's R and D to get into the acquisition process. If it's not in the requirements, it's not going to make it into the system. So, anything that uh, that an HSI practitioner or that a, C, uh, a cognitive engineer or uh, you know any researcher can do that wants to transition their stuff is get a hold of the requirements writers and get them to put that into uh, the requirements so that the contractor then has to meet that requirement.
0: Nice, so so it sounds like they're, you know, th- this may be a way that things start to shift and we see um, these these leading edge research things really start to make their way into the operations. That's exciting.
1: Yep, yep absolutely. So Larry, as, as you sort of uh, try to teach, uh, but also in, in these kinds of contexts where you're sort of trying to make the case. Uh, how do you explain the relationship between NDM and HSI or NDM and acquisitions or NDM and, and development? What, what sort of tenets do you put forward?
2: You know, I spend most of my time teaching uh, HSI stuff because it's so broad uh, and Certainly, uh, NDM is a part of that, but uh, if your audience isn't familiar with human systems integration, um, it actually is an overarching sort of uh, discipline that includes um, seven different domains. So, it's manpower, which is the number of people that are needed to operate the system. It's personnel, which is the personnel characteristics of the people that are going to operate that system, how tall do they need to be, what what uh, kind of cognitive abilities do they need, what kind of range of motion do they need, um, and and what kind of skills do they need to have, knowledge, skills, and abilities. And then there's the training component. So given the number of people you have and their uh, their skill levels and their other attributes, how do we train them? What training do they need? Uh, and then, so with manpower personnel training, the fourth domain would be what? called human factors engineering and that's the interface between the humans and, and the technology, be that individual or, or team-oriented kinds of interactions. And then habitability because particularly in the Navy, people live in their, on their uh, systems, whether that's a, 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 uh, a destroyer or a, um, a submarine or an aircraft carrier or in the Army, uh, a tank, or uh, in the aviation community, their helicopters or their jets. Uh, And then we also have to take a look at safety and occupational health. And then another one uh, is called um, survivability and force protection. So all of those domains have to work together within the acquisition process. Uh, And so we have to be able to speak the language of systems engineers, of the test and evaluation community, of the logisticians that are involved and we have to be able to kind of be the the glue that sort of holds that all together and and part of that is uh is the ndm uh domain and make sure that as we're developing those systems that we're not just looking at okay how do they make decisions but who are those people what kind of decisions are they making what kind of training do they have uh, and uh, what's the environment, what's the context that are going to be doing it? Are they going to be doing it uh, when they may be hypoxic? Are they going to be doing it when they're what I call cold, tired, hungry, scared, wet? Uh, and then how does, that, how does that impact that and how do we need to aid them or compensate for uh, the fact that they're doing it under these degraded conditions when they're exhausted or they're cold or whatever it might be?
1: Yeah, that, that, the whole context piece around the, the findings that NDM researchers might come up with, I think is super important because uh, I do feel there's a tendency to, to focus somewhat narrowly on, on decisions and expertise and, uh, and real world events. Um, And sometimes we sort of forget that uh, both in terms of the findings we're putting forward, but also the findings we're gathering, that those are in a much larger context. And it sounds like HSI is really uh, the sort of place where your students are learning about what that larger context is.
2: Right. And obviously I'm embedded in the military domain, but the same thing holds true whether you're doing it, in an operating room or in a nuclear power plant or something like that how long has that person been on shift if i'm going to go in for surgery i'm going to ask okay when was the last time you slept (laughs) and how many times have you done this procedure and all those things that would uh, impact their their ability to make good decisions are sometimes beyond what typical and then indian researchers would would focus on but i think it's absolutely important for them to be Successful in whatever that context is
1: right. I also wondered as you were talking about the um, Acquisition uh, Program that, that you're sort of involved in this near-term or, or considering near-term needs sort of midterm and long-term um, uh, I think NDM uh, researchers uh, often sort of look for a a very I don't know how to say it, luxurious <laughs> way to do research in the sense that, uh, you know, we've traditionally thought about interviews need to take two hours. Or we're going to need, you know, eight to 12 people to talk to. And uh, and then it's going to take us a while to work through the findings and come up with insights. So there is, uh, or at least traditionally, um, has been a, a bit of a challenge with this sort of uh, the timeline, if you will, uh, expediency of, of NDM findings. And I'm wondering... Um, uh, are you seeing any opportunities to sort of, uh, be, because of necessity, sort of uh, make the whole NDM uh, approach a bit more efficient because there is maybe an opportunity to get involved in sort of short-term uh, opp- you know, research opportunities and, and to deliver things more rapidly? Are you seeing that as a, as a challenge to the NDM community or are you seeing as, as an opportunity for us to just get more efficient so that the findings can become useful?
2: So I think we underestimate how much we know, uh, and I, I think that you know we've got decades and decades of experience of experience in NDM and cognitive engineering and, and human factors, and anybody that's you know had a decent amount of education and a decent amount of experience in the field can probably answer a good portion of the questions that are going to be asked early in the process. And so in the acquisition process, and I hate to keep going back to that, but that's kind of the world I'm living right now. At the very beginning of the acquisition process, they're trying to decide in the military context, okay, I want to, I need a long range reconnaissance capability. And that's the need for a four-star admiral or general. That's a combatant commander in some region of the world. They need a long range reconnaissance capability. How do I do that? Well, I could do that with uh, a satellite-based system. I could do it with a, a manned uh, aerial system. I can do it with an unmanned aerial system. I can use um, sensors that are dropped uh, in, in, on the ground somewhere. I could even do it with humans if I put humans out there in different places around the world, around the globe. At that point in time, so very early in the acquisition process, the cost estimators and the engineers are are giving people these wild estimates. How much is that system going to cost? Well, you ask a cost estimator they 'll tell you somewhere between two billion and twenty billion dollars uh, to between two billion and twenty billion dollars. You ask a human factors or or NDM researcher or whoever someone that 's sort of grounded in the empirical research methods. They're going to say, well, give me six months and $500,000 and, you know, this many people, and I'll give you the answer to a level of significance of 0.05 or 0.01. No, they don't want that. If you ask them, if they ask you what what you think, they're just looking for a, an answer that's no more precise than what the cost estimator gave or what the engineer gave. Uh, and so we have to kind of get over ourselves and our desire for precision early in the acquisition process and give them our best guess because once we tell them that it's going to take six months and $500,000, they're going to walk away and say, forget about you guys. You're no good to us. So we have to be educated enough and skilled enough and, and practiced enough in our, in our field to be able to give them an answer that we are you know, 85, 75% confident in. And then as the system matures and as those parameters have to tighten down, we can have the research uh, that will give us the, the more narrowly defined answer.
1: Yeah, that, that sounds like a tremendously valuable lesson uh, for, for this community to realize. Um, and I'm sure we, you know, we all get caught up in in that ideal project, right? we were trying to propose what would be ideal, but but what you're suggesting is that uh, sometimes good enough is is good enough to get us started. Um, so yeah, that that's tremendously important. I want to switch a bit to your sort of teaching role um, and you're teaching at NPS uh, and you've taught for many years uh, on faculty at West Point. I'm just curious if, if there's any way that you can think that you're NDM perspective and then the sort of the ethos of, of NDM kind of influenced the way that you went about teaching uh, and mentoring cadets and uh, and others who you've taught.
2: Yeah, I got back to West Point in 1995. Uh, so that after I finished my PhD at Ohio State, I got back there in 1995, and I, I spent a year just sort of observing what was going on and, and how the program was functioning and. After the end of that year, I gathered the the, uh, the staff together, the research staff together. I had, I had three people that were full-time research folks, and then I had about four or five uh, junior faculty members that taught uh, in my program. And I said, look, we're transitioning to what was being done, which is sort of all over the map, different kinds of research projects and different areas of, of human factors. And I said, we are... We are now moving towards a sort of command decision. Say, <laughs> so We are now moving towards uh, doing research in, in military command and control uh, and in particular military decision making. So we began to reorient the, uh, the facilities and the research topics and the research dollars that we went after Uh, To focus in in that area, which is actually how I wound up working with the Fed Lab and then eventually the advanced decision architectures programs. And then obviously the cadet projects uh, that cadets would do for their capstones and for their uh, course projects then began to focus in those areas as well.
0: So Larry, as you think back over your career, you have this operational experience, you've had this teaching experience, you've been a researcher. Is what what aspects of your work have been most rewarding to you?
2: I would say without question it's the mentoring that I've done with the cadets over the years. I I love teaching. In fact, when I was getting ready to retire in 2005, uh, uh, about a year or so before I began looking around to see okay, what am I going to do after I take off my uniform and I had the opportunity to work with all sorts of wonderful, wonderful folks that I had been working with uh, in the um, the Advanced Decision Architecture Ar- 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 Architectures uh, Consortium, and I, but I felt like I still had this passion to teach, and so now, 15 years later, I still love teaching and I still love mentoring students. Uh, <laughs> I just was on the phone uh, a few days ago with a an incoming uh, PhD student here at NPS. Um, His name is Charlie Rowan. Charlie was in my class in 2004, 2005 uh, at West Point. He was an engineering psychology major. Uh, Fast forward uh, to 2012, and Charlie comes to NPS to get his master's degree under me. Uh, And then he went back to my old program at West Point to teach in it. And now fast forward to 2020, and he's showing up here at NPS in about uh, a month or so to begin working on his PhD with me. So, and and that's one story. There are are lots of other stories about uh, cadets and uh, NPS graduates who have come back and expressed their appreciation and have gone out and done great things in the Army or the Navy uh, with respect to human factors and, and HSI. And... Uh, decision making so that to me is tremendously rewarding
0: so that answer does not surprise me in part because the first time I met you I think I was at a conference or something and you were giving a talk and I'm just sitting there passively taking notes and then you called me by name and I stood up I don't even remember what I had to do but it was a the, the way you kind of engaged with the people in the audience, me in particular, and um, and got everyone involved and, and actively following along, um, just really struck me. So I, I'm not surprised to hear that that's, that's really what you love to do.
2: I remember that to this day, I put my hat on you. I put my military yeah. lieutenant colonel hat on you. I was a lieutenant colonel at the time. And I, I think I said, you are now the commander. What are you gonna do? Uh, or something like that. I, I remember that to this day.
0: Yeah, and I probably looked like a deer in the headlights. I had no idea, <laughs> but um, but it was awesome. You know, I was completely in the moment. That was that was great. Yeah.
2: Well, I still like to do those things uh, when when students come in the classroom. I will give them a scenario. I'll send them the board. I will um, get them to engage with the material uh, that really reinforces what it is that they. Uh, read or studied the night before, uh, and I get lots of good feedback for that. And I just I love that that interaction with the with the students.
0: I'm sure, yeah, and I'm sure they really appreciate it too. Um, so I, I'm I'm going to ask another question here. As you as you work with students, um, and I know you've worked with you know young cadets and more experienced graduate students, um, but but what is what is one of the most surprising things that that comes to you as you as, as you think about your work with students what have you learned from them maybe
2: well one of the reasons I'm teaching out here at MBS is because the students out here are every bit as impressive as the cadets at West Point the cadets at West Point and other service academies are just the you know the best of the best that the country has to offer and the students here at NPS are the same. Uh, Type of people that just happen to be about 10 years older and now they've got uh, families and children and so forth. And so their, their curiosity and their enthusiasm is, is contagious. I uh, have been teaching for the last couple years um, a, a group of systems engineering students all about human systems integration and uh, cognitive engineering and decision making and so forth. <clears throat> and to see them get so excited about it uh, is just really refreshing. Not only that, but when they graduate from NPS, they go to acquisition programs to be assistant program managers or they go to the contracting offices, uh, offices that are going to engage with the industry folks to uh, put the contracts out there to build the system. So getting them excited about, about the human element and then knowing that they're going to go out there and do those jobs uh, is, is exciting. I, you know, I have taught now going on 28 years, counting my time at West Point and here, and it's in the last two or three years that I'm teaching these folks that I think that, yeah, these people are going to go out and really make a difference because they're going to take what they learned in my class and they're going to remember it and they're going to make sure that the human is central to the design of the system.
1: So, Larry, you, you've obviously taught and mentored hundreds, if not thousands. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you can give us sort of your top three mentors. Who do you look uh, and think about as being the folks that influence you the most?
2: Well, you guys know me well enough to know that the names that I'll give you probably won't be a surprise. I would tell you that the, the first one is uh, is uh, David Woods. So Dave was my um, my. Uh, PhD advisor at uh, Ohio State. In fact, when I showed up though, it was supposed to be Phil Smith. And so um, I looked, before I got to Ohio State, I looked at what the various faculty members were going to be working on. I thought, okay, uh, I think what I was interested in was more aligned with what Phil Smith uh, was working on. So I showed up and they said, oh, uh, Dr. David Woods is gonna be your advisor. I said, okay we'll see how that works out. And and sure enough, it worked out great. Um, I love his his energy and his passion. He's got more ideas than any one man has a right to have. Uh, he's always on the leading edge of whatever's going on. And, you know, started back with CEDM, uh and um, uh, or Cognitive Systems Engineering and NDM and then Resilience. And I just heard him uh, a week or two ago doing a podcast on COVID-19. So he's one. second one, Gary Klein. Uh, I just saw uh, a, uh, a video of him a couple of days ago uh, doing a talk, which I think he did in, uh, in 2017. It was called uh, Ant- on Anticipatory Thinking, which I thought was great. And what I love about Gary is that he's got this incredible way of storytelling, and I wish I were a better storyteller like him. He he typically, as you guys know, um, will put up a, a slide and will we'll list these, you know, six or seven or eight bullets on the slide, and you'll look at them and, and, you know, you'll say, okay, yeah, got it, got it, got it. That all makes sense. And then he'll say, well, I'm here to tell you why all of those are exactly wrong. <laughs> and you're like, What? <laughs> Uh, and so I, I love that storytelling uh, nature of him. I love the fact that he's a prolific author. I love his curiosity uh, and his very humble approach to things. Uh, third one would be uh, Robert Hoffman. Um, I've got a chance to know Robert over the years, particularly through the, uh, the ADA consortium. Uh, just a brilliant guy, so intelligent. Um, and I think he's a great foil to folks like, like Dave Woods. Uh, and I love the experimental psychologist in him where he will just grill you and grill you to make sure that your study is, is tight uh, and there are no confounds in it whatsoever. Uh, an amazing editor and writer, um, he actually edited a, a paper uh, that my wife and I wrote, uh, tore it up, and I, we thought, wow, well, we're never going to submitted because why bother <laughs> it was so badly edited or poor uh, and, and apparently poorly written but we 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 uh persevered and it actually wound up winning a best paper award in the in the uh the journal of organizational behavior uh so we have robert to thank for that plus robert always knows the best restaurants to go
0: to no matter where you are he will take you to the best restaurant so those are the top three folks
2: for me
1: Anybody outside of NDM that uh, has been a big big influence?
2: My wife. um, I will tell you that I I am so amazed by her. She is uh, one of the most uh, kindest and and tenderhearted people uh, I've ever met. But she's got this incredible uh, passion for what it is that she does. If you are not familiar with her work, uh, she's been working... On sleep and fatigue issues in the military for the last two decades, and she has almost single-handedly changed the culture of the Department of the Navy so that they are now thinking rightly about sleep and fatigue and human performance, and I I am in awe of her ability to do that. The other thing I'm in awe of is her intuitive nature. So it's, it's probably my my personality, but probably some of my military training where if I'm going to go from A to Z, I have to get through, you know, B to Y before I get there. Otherwise it just doesn't work for me. She can go from A to Z in a heartbeat. And then when I get to Z, I typically, I have to respond was with, Oh, Oh, now I see what you you were thinking about and what you were telling me to do. But, um, but she's incredibly uh, gifted and, um, uh, I'm really proud of her, and uh, I, I love working with her. We just don't get to work together very often, though.
0: Okay, I I have another question I'm going to ask. Um, uh, so imagine you meet a complete stranger who claims to practice NDM. On pain of death, you are given one question to determine if they do indeed practice NDM. What do you ask?
2: <laughs> That's a really interesting <laughs> question. <laughs> I would ask them um, where they're doing their research. And and if they tell me they're doing it in their office or their, their laboratory, I would tell them that they are not doing NDM. If they tell me they're doing it uh, in in the field, in a nuclear power plant, in a uh, operating room, or some place where there's actual real work going on, then the chances are that may they may be doing NDM.
1: So con- the context matters. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. All right, we have uh, one last somewhat fun question. Um, We are going to ask you to tell us two truths about yourself and one lie. And then we're both going to try to guess the lie.
2: (laughs) Okay. Two truths and a lie. I'll do this in chronological order. Okay. When I was at West Point, I was on the Army football team. Second, when I was at the Army War College... I went out and played golf and shot a hole-in-one. And third, about 18 months ago, I became a grandfather for the first time.
1: Hmm. Two sports in a family. Let's see. I am not sure you were on the football team. I'm going to say that's the lie.
0: I think hardly anyone gets a hole in one. I'm going to say that's the lie.
2: Okay, I was not on the football team, but I was on the cadet gymnastics team for four years, and I was oh, the tallest yeah. gymnast. I was the tallest gymnast on the team. Um, I did actually get a hole in one on a par three, 186 yard, at the Army War College golf course, and I was—I had played golf like three or four times in my life, and. <laughs> the, uh, the one of the people I was playing with, who was a scratch golfer, uh, she handed me her club and said, "Here, use this." And I hit it in the hole, and I was as shocked as anybody. And uh, I am in fact the grandfather of a uh, 18 month old uh, James Kelly.
1: Wow! Congratulations.
0: Thank you.
1: And that sounds like the perfect place to wrap up the conversation. Um, Thank you so much, Larry. This has been awesome speaking with you. And uh, I I think the lessons that you're uh, offering on the chat with us today, but also clearly to generations of students about how to put NDM in context are incredibly important. So it's been a pleasure to speak with you about them.
2: My pleasure too. Thanks so much for the opportunity
1: and with that uh we will close out for the ndm podcast i'm brian moon
0: and i'm laura militello learn more about naturalistic decision making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org. <laughs>